Hi everybody, thank you so much for checking out our podcast. If you'd like to know more about us or connect with us, then please do go to our church website and we would love to get to know you some more. Here's today's message. We hope it blesses you, encourages and inspires you. Be with you. Um, and Matt's quite right. Uh, since he came to join you in 2015, um, every Sunday morning, uh, Pretty much without exception, uh, I've prayed for him, his ministry here, and for you. So it's, it's great to actually be in the place that I've prayed for for those seven years. And uh, so that's a real thrill. Um, Matt asked me to provide a little bit of stimulus um, as you think about the future on this special Sunday. And I'm going to do that. And um, so I want to read to you from John's Gospel, chapter 17, um, a, a very familiar passage to lots of you I know, and I think a profoundly important passage as we think about the way to do church. Um, over the years, um, I've enjoyed reading and learning from all sorts of people that have written on that subject, and uh, much of what has been written has kind of found its way into the churches that I've led over the years, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but it does seem to me that we need to get to what Jesus makes uh, primary uh, when we think about how to do church. And I can't think of a passage where that is made more clear than in this particular prayer of his that he prayed at such a significant time. So I suggest that what we read him praying about here uh, really ought to point to the priorities for us as we do church. And unlike some of the things you might read in books that others have written, helpfully or unhelpfully, I think what we see Jesus praying about is relevant uh, for all time in every situation. And not everything we read in other people's books, of course, uh, the same can be said. So, John 17, and uh, then we'll get into it together. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, 
for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may, myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. So what does Jesus pray about? Well, Fairly complicated prayer, wasn't it? I guess if, um, if pastor prayed a prayer like that, some of you might drop off, I suspect, because it's really quite complex. But I suggest to you that there's an underlying theme that really explains the focus of most of what he's praying about. And that's, I think, relationships. That's what Jesus chooses to pray about. 
at this significant moment of time. In other words, according to Jesus, the key to doing church right, to doing church well, is relationships. It's as simple as that, but as difficult as that, because relationships are not always easy, are they? So what are the relationships that Jesus prays about and that need to be right if we're to do church well? Well, firstly, he speaks about, rather than prays about at one stage, the relationship that the disciples have with himself. So the first key relationship, and I guess it's the bottom line, isn't it, is our relationship with Jesus. That needs to be right. And a number of things we see, as in those early verses, verses 6 to 8 of the prayer, as Jesus reflects upon the journey the disciples have made, he speaks about a number of things that need to govern their ongoing relationship with him. First of all, it's to be a servant relationship. In other words, the church is not its own, but the church belongs to Christ. So in these verses, Jesus says, Father, those that belong to you, you've given to me. They're my possession, says Jesus. They don't belong to themselves, but rather they belong to me. And then later on, you have this rather complicated section about sanctification. Jesus prays, in essence, that these people that you've given me just as I've been wholly committed to you, Father, so I pray that they may be wholly committed to me. And so that's highly significant, isn't it, as we think about the way to do church. The one who ought to be calling the shots is not any of us, no matter how gifted we might be, and I imagine in a place like this there's a number of very gifted people. But actually the one who needs to be calling the shots is the Lord Jesus Christ. For the church is his, and the church is not ours. I remember many years ago, soon after I began in ministry in the 1980s, a good friend of mine took me to listen to John Wimber, who was doing some stuff in Wembley Arena. And uh, one of the things that I've never forgotten about that experience, and a number of things I've never forgotten about that experience, but one of them was that Wimber said that he believed the Lord was saying to the church, give me back my church. And I think the challenge always comes to us to ensure that the church is not driven by its traditions, its familiar ways or patterns, its gifted people, its constitutional church rules, but the church needs to always 
be driven by Christ. So it's a servant relationship. Secondly, it must be a confident relationship. Um, Jesus speaks about the way in which these men and women, though they don't get a mention, of course, at this point, but these men had come to believe what he had said and had confidently embraced it as the truth from heaven. We live in a society where people are suspicious of dogma, clarity, certainty. There's a desire to be much more woolly than we, I think, and hope would want to be about what the truth is. And as Jesus speaks about where the disciples have arrived, he makes it plain that they are now men of conviction, unswerving conviction, that Jesus has come from heaven, that he is the Son of God, and that the things that he speaks are utterly trustworthy and true. In a society which celebrates pluralism, many ways to God, political correctness, it's not always comfortable to voice confidently and without uh, hesitation that we have the knowledge of the truth. But that's what Jesus declared about the disciples. And it seems to me that that is what must be true of us. Even though we live in a very secular age where people largely doubt the claims we make, we're on a hiding to nothing. If we try to adapt the truth to satisfy the people that doubt it, we need to trust and continue to trust that uniquely God spoke to us through his Son that which is utterly truthful and on which we can take our stand. I remember years ago hearing a story about the atheistic philosopher David Hume uh, some of you maybe have read some of his stuff. I don't know. I've never read any of it. I think it would confuse me. But I like the story. Apparently, he was rushing through the streets, and I can't remember where it was. But uh, one of his friends stopped him and said, where are you off to in such a hurry? And um, he turned around and said, I'm going to listen to Whitfield preach. And uh, his friend said, but you don't believe that stuff. No, you're quite right, but Whitfield does. And there he was, you see, prepared to listen to the voice of conviction, although it contradicted his perspective. If we want to do church well, we need to be in a confident relationship with Jesus Christ. Not to doubt him, but to trust him and to dare to speak about him.
with clarity. Thirdly, this relationship with Jesus is to be a dependent relationship. An extension, an expansion of something I've already said. But verses 6 to 8 in chapter 17 explore a familiar theme in John's gospel. In other words, the dependence that Jesus spoke of upon his Father for the ministry that he exercised. It's one of those areas of John's gospel where the theologians get quite agitated. But it's there for all to see. So Jesus speaks in these verses again about his dependence upon the Father for the results of his ministry. He had been successful, he said, because the Father had caused it to be so. And then in verse 8, he says again, as he does elsewhere in the gospel, the words that I've spoken, they're not my words, but the words the Father has given me. Once again, this solid sense of, I depend utterly upon my Father's working for the things that I do. Now, this dependency, unembarrassed dependency, is also to be true of us if we're to do church well. And you would be familiar with what we've read or, or we've heard back in chapter 15, this familiar allegory of the vine and the branches where Jesus makes clear to his disciples that the secret is utter dependence upon him for everything that they will do. Fruitfulness, says Jesus, is only a possibility if you preserve your relationship with me. And of course, that's so. Because Jesus knew full well the Father's teaching over the years that God opposes the proud, those who think they can handle it all. But he gives grace to the humble, those prepared to say, I can't, you must. And it seems to me that this is the attitude that God delights in. It is not the self-sufficient. It is not the self-confident. But it is the humbly dependent servant of Christ who will see Jesus work the best and the most. And so this is the first relationship that's vital. And I don't know how you function as a people, but this needs to be right your relationship with Jesus. This isn't rocket science. I'm no theologian. I'm a practitioner. But it seems to me that if this is wrong, we have a problem. The second relationship that you may have noticed Jesus speaking about is our relationship with the world. 
And when John's Gospel speaks about the world, it doesn't speak about the created world with its beauty, the things that we sometimes look around at and say, isn't that awesomely lovely? It's not that world. When John speaks about the world, he speaks about human society, and particularly human society, which is at best indifferent to God and at worst opposed to God. What's our relationship with this rebellious or indifferent society to be? Well, again, Jesus' prayer reveals with clarity an answer to that question. First of all, it needs to be missional. Throughout these chapters, these upper room kind of conversational chapters that we're in the middle of, or rather at the end of, one theme has emerged throughout, and that is that Jesus is shaping his disciples for an all-important task. And that task is to carry the message of Christ to the whole wide world. So in chapter 13, he speaks about the disciples as the messengers and representatives of God himself. In chapter 15, that we've already mentioned, the vine and its branches, the whole purpose of discipleship is fruitfulness. Again in chapter 15, and nearer the end, the duty and responsibility of the disciple is to, is to bear witness to Christ. And this comes into stark focus here in verse 18. As Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world also. In other words, our relationship with the world must be governed by this perspective that we exist to take the message of Christ to those who don't know it. Sometimes it's tempting, isn't it, to wash our hands of society around us as it seems that no matter what we do, there's a lack of responsiveness. But that is no option for us as the people of God. For we are a sent people. And in spite of the level of responsiveness or the lack of it, we need to keep going, to keep speaking, to keep loving, to keep sharing. I don't know what kind of priority you give to mission as a church. I suspect high priority unless I don't know Matt as well as I think. And I've already met Kimberly, who was introduced as Kim, but got a Kimberly on the screen, I think. Which is it, Kimberly or Kim? Kimberly. So, 
you guys are serious about this. You know, this is what Jesus said. We should all be serious about this. We should be out there in Jesus' name sharing Christ. Secondly, and famously, Jesus says that our relationship with the world must be incarnational. You know, this whole thing about in the world. So we're really connected. We're really engaged. We're not hiding away in our ghetto. But we're also not of the world. We live a sufficiently different life with different values, different beliefs, different patterns of behavior so that we don't simply meld into the background. And the church has struggled with this, hasn't it, over the years, frankly? There have been certain streams of the church that have said, well, it's so bad out there, I can't afford to be there. And they've hidden themselves away. Disastrous. Where's the salt and light? Or others have said, well, I need to get stuck in. But in the interest of gaining a hearing of forgotten, they must always stand differently at certain points and places. And they've ended up with no witness to give. We need to be incarnational at one and the same time, genuinely engaged and connected but different enough for people to look and to say, what is it about you that doesn't seem to be the same? What is it about you that causes you to respond differently and to behave in a way that I don't quite understand, but I find attractive and appealing? One of the things I do in retirement, Matt, is uh, I'm the chaplain of Braintree Town Football Club. Um, yes, you might well laugh if you know where we are in the, in the table. That's probably justified. But I do it deliberately because it's a godless setup. Uh, hard drinking, language you wouldn't want me to use on the platform in abundance. Uh, bad behavior and politics. If you think there's politics in church, you ought to try a football club sometime. But it gives me an opportunity to connect and to engage. And now and again, there seems to be some meaning to that. And we have these unexpectedly significant conversations. But if I wasn't there, it would never happen. And I've done... A funeral for somebody who had a stillborn child. Well, that would never have happened had I not been there. So we need to take some risks and be out in places that are uncomfortable, but to do it in Jesus' name. And the third thing that seems very clear about what our relationship with the, church, with the world needs to be, it needs to be a prayerful relationship. Because that's what Jesus is doing, isn't it? I pray for them, Lord. Um, in the world, it's tough. He, he recognizes there's temptations. 
There's persecution, certainly there was for them, not really much for us, but in other parts of the world, that's very real, isn't it? Temptations, persecutions. And then, of course, Jesus focuses right in and he says, and the spiritual opposition from the evil one. And so I pray for them, says Jesus. And significantly, he prays specifically for our protection when it comes to our unity. And we'll come on to that in a minute. Prime strategy of the devil is to destroy the church's unity. And of course, there's a mention in here of Judas. Now, there's a debating point for the theologians as well. Judas made choices, wrong choices, in spite of all the advantages of walking with Jesus for three years, he blew it. Maybe he wasn't prayerful enough. We need to be prayerful people if we're serious about being out there in enemy territory and seeking to make Jesus known. I don't know how your prayer life is, guys. Most churches struggle. I don't know whether that's true for you as well. But it really is a priority. We need to pray for our protection from all the stuff that would undermine our witness, destroy our unity, and spoil who we need to be in these challenging days. So Jesus prays about our relationship with the world. Thirdly, and the clock doesn't work. I wish it did. I have no idea where I'm at. But our relationship with each other. And I guess when I read the passage, you thought, I know what he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about church unity. Well, yes. But there's other stuff there as well that's vital, isn't it, about doing church right. But yeah, unity's right there, isn't it? So at the back end of the prayer, verses 20 to 26 particularly, there's this emphasis upon the importance of the church in real ways. Not just in ways that are spoken about, but in real ways, demonstrating that they love each other. Why is it so important? Well, Jesus mentions some of those ways in this prayer. But I suggest it's important, first of all, because it ensures our stability in Christ. It ensures our stability. You remember Jesus is once accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Do you remember that in the Gospels? And um, Jesus is none too impressed by that accusation and charge. And he deals with it in two ways. But he says, first of all, look, this is absolute garbage. He says, any kingdom divided against itself is never going to stand Are you serious, says Jesus, in suggesting that the devil's giving himself trouble? Nonsense. No stability 
where there is division and discord and hostility. So we need to preserve our unity because it ensures our stability in Christ. Together we stand, divided we fall. And I still do quite a lot of work uh, as a mentor, tutor for students at Spurgeon's College. And I can tell you that too many churches still butt heads all the time. And instead of putting their energies into what they're meant to do, they waste their energies fighting each other over things often that don't matter. We need to be one for stability purposes. First, secondly, it preserves our fellowship with Christ. Already spoken about that lovely vine and branches allegory, haven't we? But Jesus makes it clear that unless we love one another, keep the commandments he's given, then the reality of our dynamic unity with Jesus falls apart. In my, um, in my first church, soon after I was converted, so back in the 1970s now, uh, my pastor was a musician, quite an accomplished musician. And so every now and again, he used to write songs for us to learn and sing. And uh, that was fine. But I still remember one of the songs that he wrote, and it was all about building a house of love. Three or four verses, but that was the essential theme. And, um, and it spoke about, it, it, it grabbed what Jesus is wanting us to understand about this, isn't it? That where there's a house of love, there's lots of Jesus. Where there's not a house of love, there's not much of Jesus around. We might suggest he's there in the midst, but if we're fighting each other, I'm not sure that's the truth. Bitterness grieves the Holy Spirit. Resentment grieves the Holy Spirit. Unforgiveness grieves the Holy Spirit. Build a house of love. Was absolutely right, that pastor of mine. And of course, Psalm 133, how blessed it is where, where the people of God dwell together in unity, for there the blessing of God is found even life forevermore, yes? So, it preserves our fellowship in Christ. And thirdly, of course, the great Emphasis of Jesus' prayer, it supports our witness to Christ. If people see a bunch of disparate people, from all different sorts of backgrounds, actually making it work and enjoying each other, coping with differences and distinctions without falling out, if people see that, then they're going to say, what's going on around here? How did that happen? That's what Jesus says. People will know that you're my disciples when they see how you love each other. Francis Schaeffer. Now there's a philosopher I've read a little bit of. Francis Schaeffer used to say, love 
is the ultimate apologetic. In other words, the most persuasive thing that the gospel is true is not so much what we say or argue, but it's the way that we live, and particularly the way we live in community. I don't know anything about you. Matt doesn't tell me anything about you. I just pray in the darkness, you know. But if people came in and kind of mixed with you guys for a few weeks, what would they, what would they sense? Do you love each other? Are you kind to each other? Or do you find fault constantly with each other? What would they see? What would they find? What would be the atmosphere that they sense? People are super sensitive to atmospheres, aren't they? You know, I had um, one of my, I got four kids, 12 grandchildren, hard to manage all this it is. But we had one of them visit the other day. And you know, when, when my son and his wife came into the house, I thought, aye, aye, what's gone on here then? You know the kind of feeling, I cut it with a knife, what's gone on? People know. We may try to hide it, but, but they sniff it out. So, so what are you like, guys? Do you mean it when you say, I care for you, I love you, bless you in Jesus' name? Do you mean it? If we're serious about doing church, we have to mean it. So how do we do church well? Well, there's a whistle-stop tour. We get our relationships right. Our relationship with Jesus. Bottom line, is it as real, as committed, as obedient, as confident as it needs to be? Our relationship with the world. Are we out there taking risks, but preserving our identity? as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what about in here? Is it working or is it not working?